Deuteronomy 26, and my ambition this morning is to walk through verses 1 through 15. Deuteronomy 26, verses 1 through 15, because this is the word of God, you are the people of God, and this is the Lord's day. If you are able, would you please stand for the reading and the hearing of God's holy word. Deuteronomy 26, beginning in verse 1, and we will read through verse 15. Moses writes, as he is carried along by the Spirit, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you. And you shall put it in a basket. And you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. And you shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall make response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my father. And he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number. And there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers. And the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. When you have finished paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, giving it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your towns and be filled, then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion out of my house. Moreover, I have given it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all your commandment that you have commanded me. I have not transgressed any of your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. I have not eaten of the tithe while I was mourning, or removed any of it while I was unclean, or offered any of it to the dead. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God. I have done according to all that you have commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation, from heaven, and bless your people Israel and the ground 
that you have given us as you soar to our fathers a land flowing with milk and honey. The grass withers, church family. The flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. When our children began to speak, one of the very first lessons Tana and I taught them was how to say two words. Thank you. Thank you. This is certainly not unique to us. In fact, we observed this practice in other parents, older, wiser parents, after whom we modeled so much of what we do with our children. And we desired to emulate that practice that we observed in the parenting of other wise men and women. I remember repeatedly asking our children after they received a gift from someone. And here's the question. This is the question perhaps you've heard, perhaps you've employed the question. What do you say? When a gift is given and the parent turns to the child and the parent says to the child, what do you say? And the child knows the answer to the question. The answer is simply, thank you. It was important to us that our children learned how to respond to the generosity and to the kindness of others. Conversely, as I thought about this, there is not much more that justifiably offends than an ungrateful and even entitled child or adult. Ungratefulness and entitlement are direct assault on the gratitude that grows out of an understanding that what you have, you did not earn fundamentally, but received out of the generosity of another. In Deuteronomy 26, verses 1 through 15, like, I want you to notice this, like a loving father who is instructing his children in how to say thank you. God, as it were, turns to us and asks the question, what do you say? How should you respond? And he directs us in how to respond to his grace and his generosity with a heart overwhelmed by gratitude and thankfulness. That's really what Deuteronomy 26 verses 1 through 15 is all about. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look together at, if you think about, think about it in terms of a broader overarching theme, the proper response to God's grace. That's the focus of Deuteronomy 26, verses 1 through 15, the proper response to God's grace. And we're going to look together at this proper response in two sections, two questions, if you will, if you're jotting down notes. The first question is this, what did God instruct Israel to do? That's our first question. What did God instruct Israel to do? To do, And what he instructed of Israel had everything to do with how they were to respond to his generosity, to his grace, to his mercy. So first, what did God instruct Israel to do? And we're going to spend a fair amount of time here because here we're going to walk through the text, 15 verses or so. We won't touch on every single detail, but we're going to notice that there are two ceremonies, as it were, 
that God installs. And it may be that these ceremonies were one-time events, but doubtless they were to inform the worship practices of Israel from this time forth. So there are a couple of ways that the text answers that question, what did God instruct Israel to do? And we'll look together at those two ways in just a few moments. And then secondly, we will move on to what does God instruct us to do through Christ this morning? So first, what did God instruct Israel to do? And secondly, what does God instruct us to do through Christ this Lord's Day morning? Because we read Old Testament scriptures, not simply as descriptive of what God once did for Israel, but as instructive for how it is we are to respond through Christ Jesus with a heart overwhelmed with gratitude. So what did God instruct Israel to do first and what does God instruct us to do through Christ Second, let's begin with our first question. What did God instruct Israel to do? And as I mentioned to you, there are a couple of ways of answering this, a couple of ways the text answers this. First, first of all, Israel was to surrender to the Lord the first fruits of the land. Israel was to surrender to the Lord the first fruits of the land. I want you to look with me at verses one and two. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, verse two, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground, the first fruits which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you and you shall put it in a basket. You shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. And then as verses three and four go on to describe each land-owning Israelite was to present their offering through the priest to the Lord. And the priest, of course, is not named because the priest, the identity of the priest doesn't matter. The priest is simply, in this case, simply a, a mediator, as it were, an ambassador, even if you will. And it's through the priest that each Israelite was to offer out of gratitude and surrender out of gratitude the first fruits they had received from the land. Now, I want you to make note of the repetition of a concept in the text. If you highlight in your Bibles or you underline in your Bibles, this is perhaps a good place to do that. Notice verse one, and this appears a number of times. Verse one, the land is described as a gift. It is the land that the Lord your God is what? Giving you, you see? Verse two, the first fruits of the ground is something the Lord your God is what? Giving you. Look down at verse nine. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land. Verse 10 describes the ground which you, O Lord, have given me. So when Israel comes into the land and as they begin to see the ground produce a crop, they are to recognize that the land and the produce from the land are nothing less than the gracious gifts God is giving to his people. They didn't merit this. They didn't earn these gifts. They aren't worthy of these 
gifts and their liturgy, their worship was to be reflective of that reality, you see. This is, by the way, why it's important to think about the order and the structure and the words that we recite or sing or pray or read when we gather together and worship. They are instructive for us and we see that patterned throughout Scripture and this is one of those examples in Deuteronomy 26. Time and time again, their liturgy, the form their worship was to take was a reminder that everything they had was a gift from the Lord. They were nothing more than unworthy servants upon whom God had placed his love, affection, and kindness. So what this means is that the fundamental disposition of God's people is to be one of gratitude. The fundamental disposition of God's people is to be one of gratitude. This is also why throughout Scripture, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here, but I can do that because I have a microphone after all. (laughs) Throughout Scripture, we we find this command. We find it even in our text in verse 11. We're going to get there. Rejoice. Paul will say things like rejoice in the Lord. And again I say rejoice. How is it that joy can be something commanded? Well, when the fundamental disposition of the heart and the affections is that of gratitude, joy just simply bubbles up and is an outflow of what we understand concerning what God has done for us in Christ. As the worshiper presented the first fruits as an offering, again, in the ceremony, remember this is, this is ceremony number one. There's a second ceremony we'll look at in just a moment. So in this ceremony number one, the worshiper is presenting the first fruits as an offering. By the way, he's doing so at the tabernacle, the place where God chooses to place his name, make his name dwell. Throughout Deuteronomy, that's just another way of referring to the final resting place of the tabernacle and eventually the temple. It will become Jerusalem, as we know from later texts in Scripture. But in Deuteronomy, it's just the place God will decide to place his name. And so the worshiper gathers at the tabernacle and eventually the temple and offers the first fruits as an offering. And as they're offering the first fruits as an offering, and as I mentioned a moment ago, intimated actually, this perhaps is a... a, Single occurrence, at least the first ceremony. It's difficult to know. It it certainly informs later occurrences. But but this is the very first time after they come into the land, the very first time the land produces. This is a moment of celebration. And as they're celebrating in the presence of the living God, there are certain things that the worshiper is to say or cite. For example, in verse 3, the worshiper, the Israelite, recognizes that he has come into the land that the Lord swore to his fathers. This is the result of God making good on his promise. God always keeps his promises. One of the most important lessons you can teach your children, parents, your grandchildren, grandparents, is that simple truth. God always keeps his promises. And he does so here in the text 
That is to say, the worshiper's prayer, the worshiper's worship began with a recognition that his blessings were the result of God making good on his promise. Additionally, observe that in verses 5 through 10, there's a lot there, but in verses 5 through 10, God instructed his people to repeat really what has been referred to at times as a kind of creed. And Old Testament scholars debate on whether we should refer to this as a creed, but it has a creedal sense to it. Say these words in the presence of God. And then what the worshiper does is recall God's kindness, generosity, and redemption. Look with me, beginning at verse 5. This is what the worshiper was to say. A wandering Aramean. Septuagint reads Syrian. A wandering Aramean was my father. A reference, by the way, to Jacob. And he went down into Egypt. Where did he go? Down into Egypt. That's important for a number of reasons. And sojourned there, few in number, and there he became a nation, great, mighty, populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers. The Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place, gave us this land, a land flung with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground which you, O Lord, have given me. That's the creed. Every worshiper throughout Israel was to recite that creed in the first year when they enjoyed the first fruits from the land. And so Israel's worship consisted of remembering, rehearsing, and restating their redemption out of Egypt. In their wandering, they are described as going down into Egypt. And going down, by the way, is not a good thing. It's there where they are mistreated and humiliated. In response to their cry for help, God mercifully sold their affliction. And he powerfully brought them out of Egypt. And he rescued them. And he judged Egypt, their oppressor. God brought Israel out of Egypt in order to bring them into the land of Canaan. And we saw that earlier in Deuteronomy. A good land where Israel was to live under God's gracious rule. Now, I don't know about you, but it's difficult for me to read this this creed and not consider the ways it parallels our own rescue through the work of Christ. Which is precisely, by the way, precisely how we ought to be reading this text. Now, I know I'm, I know I'm jumping from point one to point two. First question was, how did, what did God instruct Israel to do? The second question is, what does God instruct us to do through Christ? I know, bridging the gap a little bit here, but let me get ahead of myself. Because I can't help but see the work of Jesus Christ, the rescue of Christ in, in this creed. You see, Adam, our forefather, on account of his rebellion against God in the garden, wandered down into sin. Where he and all his descendants, all his posterity, multiplied and were treated harshly in their multiplication. God mercifully responded to our anguish and our slavery by rescuing us through the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now, now, with the promises of God as our comfort, God is leading us to the promised land. 
our everlasting home where we will live forever in the presence of our good and gracious Father. In the meantime, in the meantime, he has given us the first fruits of Christ's resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15. And he has given us the first fruits of the indwelling spirit guaranteeing the full harvest when Christ returns. Friends, are you able to say that this morning? Are you able to read a text like this in God's word? Not simply as a text that describes the experience of somebody else. Not simply as a text that describes what God once did way back when concerning an ancient people. And not even simply as a text that describes the current experience of some people around you, perhaps people in your family, perhaps your friends, perhaps people in your church, fellow students in your school, or in your student ministry, co-workers. Are you able to read this text as a description of what God has mercifully accomplished through Christ? for you. There is something different about that, isn't there? You see, faith in Scripture is not simply recognizing that something is the case. Faith is surrendering ourselves to that reality and appropriating that reality as our own. It's one thing to say Jesus Christ died and was raised for sinners. It's another thing to say Jesus Christ died and was raised for me. Is that where you are this morning? And if that's not where you are, I plead with you, embrace Jesus Christ now. Entrust your life to Christ. Give yourself to the God who who made you and who has rescued you in Christ. And if you have questions about that or would like to know more about that, then then please stay after the service and walk out of those doors when we're finished and take a left. And before you leave this building, there is a room on the right-hand side called Crossroads. Go into that room and have a conversation with a pastor who will be in there who would love to talk with you about what it means. What it means to surrender in response to God's grace given to you in Jesus Christ and how we can come alongside of you and you alongside of us as we learn to serve the master who rescued us with a greater rescue than Israel ever experienced and who set us free from a more formidable enemy than Egypt ever could have been and who has given to us an eternal inheritance, not simply a temporary inheritance in a plot of land. Before we move on to the second way Israel was to respond to God's gracious gift of the land, as we moved our way through the creed, where Israel rehearsed and remembered and recalled God's work of redemption on their behalf, rescuing them out of Egypt, and this was to frame their worship in, in year one in the land as they offered up and surrendered the first fruits from the land. Before we move on to that second ceremony, I want you to notice verse 11. And I mentioned this a moment ago, but I just want to highlight it for just a moment and then we'll we'll keep moving together. Verse 11. Notice, and you shall what? Rejoice. You shall rejoice. 
in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you. And to your house, you, and the Levite, and the sojourner who is among you. This surrendering of the first fruits of the land in worship in adoration before the God who had granted these first fruits and the land itself included a joyful celebration in the presence of God. In fact, and we don't have time to go there, but this language of rejoicing throughout the Old Covenant actually is a technical way of describing a festival. To rejoice in the presence of God is actually to have a a festival party in God's presence. And so what this means is that the worshiper brought the first fruits into the presence of God and surrendered them to God. But don't miss this, the worshiper actually was privileged to partake of those first fruits in the presence of God. How generous is this God who gives to his people the land, who offers to his people the produce, who then commands, bring the first fruits into my presence and offer them freely. Oh, and by the way, you will enjoy them in my presence. overwhelming grace and generosity. By the way, that's why later in the text, and I'm getting, I didn't plan on mentioning this, perhaps you notice in the second portion of the text, verses 12 through 15 in the second ceremony, part of the commitment the worshiper makes in the second ceremony is I didn't eat any of it while mourning. What in the world is that about? I ate it while I was rejoicing, but not mourning. No, this is a technical way of of describing a a non-festival season. I didn't eat it aside from the festivals. This was something that I set apart for this purpose. But in verse 11, this is festive. This is a party, a joyful celebration in the presence of God. Second, now again, this is not... The second question. This is the second subpoint under the first question. So bear with me here, okay? Second, Israel was to surrender to the Lord all the tithes over three years. We're still answering the question what did God instruct Israel to do? And the second instruction God gives Israel was, you are to surrender to me all the tithes over three years. And the reason I say over three years is because verses 12 through 15 is a ceremony that really does focus on this triennial tithe, a tithe given every three years. Now, you may recall that God instructed Israel back in chapter 14. If you don't recall this, that's okay. I'm going to assume all of you recall it. that I only ever have to say something one time and you forever remember it. Back in Deuteronomy 14, 28 and 29, we learned that one of the tithes God commanded Israel to give, 10%, by the way, a tithe is 10%, always. One of these tithes, these 10%, as it were, God commanded Israel to give, occurred every three years. And the purpose of this tithe was to care for the poor in their midst. It it is referred to oftentimes as the charity tithe. That's not original to me. The charity tithe. 
But this wasn't the only tithe Israel was to offer. Another tithe, for example, there in that same chapter, Deuteronomy 14, verses 22 to 27. We're not going back to that text, but just as a refresher. Those verses speak about and command a festival tithe. So you had a festival tithe given every year so that Israel could gather in God's presence and observe the festival. So 10% was given to the festivals. 10% every three years is given to care for the poor. And then there was, many believe, I believe, an additional tithe, the Levitical tithe. And this was the tithe exclusively given to take care of the Levites. And this tithe is spoken of in Numbers 18, verses 21 and 24. So I think, and this is a sermon that I preached, I don't know, some time ago. I don't know how long ago it was. You could perhaps access it online. I think God instructed Israel to give three tithes. And this is not counting all their their offerings and so forth. But in our text, we find a description of the ceremony for offering this, this triennial tithe, this tithe every three years. The charity tithe. And this is the first time that they are to offer this this tithe. And this tithe is accompanied by a ceremony. And once each household had given their charity tithe every three years to care for the poor, they were to recite these words, verses 13, 14, and 15. Look down at the text with me, if you would. I have removed the sacred portion out of my house. And moreover, I have given it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You see the emphasis on those who are in need there. According to all your commandment that you have commanded me, I have not transgressed any of your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. I have not eaten of the tithe while I was mourning. There it is. I've reserved this tithe. Or removed any of it while I was unclean or offered any of it to the dead. I have no idea what that's talking about. Probably in direct contradiction to and response to Canaanite practice, as we've seen throughout Deuteronomy. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God. I have done according to all that you have commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation. Notice God has to look down. From heaven, that is, bless your people, Israel, and the ground that you have given us as you soar to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. In other words, and we're not going to say a lot here, because this is very similar to what we've just observed in the first ceremony. The worshiper committed that he had indeed followed the Lord's instructions and was now requesting the Lord's blessing from heaven on the people and on the land. Now, keep in mind, the first ceremony, the one that is described in verses 1 through 11, that ceremony took place at the tabernacle. The second ceremony, however, took place in the households. We know this for a couple of reasons, but one of the primary reasons is back in Deuteronomy 14, verses 28 and 29 or so, this tithe is instructed concerning the households. It takes place in and among the households. They don't have to go to the tabernacle to offer this tithe every three years. So that's what God instructs Israel to do. That's how they were to respond in surrender to God's grace. Now we're going to spend the remainder of our time asking and answering the second question. And the second question is, 
what does God instruct us to do through Christ? We've built a bit of a bridge already because we've seen that Israel's redemption was a foreshadow of a greater redemption through Christ. And so now we're going to ask that second question, how is it that God is instructing us through Christ this morning? And I want to give you three answers. Three answers, primarily because I had to find a reason to have three points. And I did. It wasn't intentional, actually. First, you're thinking, yeah, right. First, remember, that's the first instruction. I think God is offering us this morning as a church through this text, remember that everything you have is a generous gift from your gracious Father. Everything. I'm reminded of First Chronicles 29, verses 14, 15, and 16, where David, as, as he's leading the collection that would eventually help construct the temple, David prays these words, but who am I? What is my people? That we should be able thus to offer willingly. Who am I to even have the opportunity to give to God? He says, And then he offers the explanation, for all things come from you and of your own we have given you. What is he saying? It's not mine. It's not mine. I'm giving in response to what you've given me. And so properly what I'm offering you already belongs to you. You've just given me the privilege of doing so in worship and surrender. Everything belongs to you. David continues to pray, for we are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no abiding, O Lord, our God. All this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. That's the idea here. That this fundamental disposition of the believer's heart is that of gratitude. Why? Because he or she ruminates about the kindness of God, the generosity of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God in such a way that we view everything that we have as a gift, as a stewardship from our good and benevolent Father. By the way, one of the ways we do this, one of the ways we remember that everything we have is a generous gift from our gracious Father is through corporate worship, isn't it? I mean, think about, think about the worship even this morning. We were reminded, we, we, we started our time together after the welcome, of course. We started our time together in adoration, adoring God for who he is. And then eventually seeing God for who he is results in seeing us for who we really are. And we recognized who we are during our time of confession, that we're broken bankrupt without him. We are naked and ashamed and in need of clothing that we cannot provide. We are dead apart from God's mercy and his grace. Now why is it important that we experience that week after week after week after week? Because because the heart that authentically comes to grips with that reality that apart from Christ we can do nothing 
that there is none righteous, no, not one, that all have turned aside together, they have become useless. There is none who does good, no, not even one. The heart that authentically comes to grips with that reality is postured for gratitude. Postured not for entitlement, ungratefulness, but postured to remember that everything we have is the result of God's generosity to needy sinners. And by the way, postured in such a way that our our worth, our worth is found in God's generosity, not properly in ourselves, you see. We do have worth, absolutely infinite worth, but it's found and it's rooted fundamentally in God's generosity and his grace, in God's mercy. That's where our worth is found. Secondly, in addition to remembering that everything you have is a generous gift from your gracious Father, I believe that God is instructing us through Christ this morning to rejoice. Rejoice in your eternal inheritance through Christ. So remember that everything you have is a generous gift from your Father. And secondly, rejoice in your eternal inheritance through Christ Jesus. I want you to listen to the way the Apostle Peter describes our inheritance in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Peter writes these words, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse four, to an inheritance. Now here's his description of the inheritance. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Church family, our inheritance surpasses the land of Canaan. Israel entered Canaan and it wasn't too terribly long before they forfeited their inheritance. But according to the word of God, you can't forfeit an inheritance you did not earn and you do not keep. Your inheritance in Christ is kept for you by someone stronger than you. That's good news, brothers and sisters. And I love, this isn't an exposition of Peter, but we're reading texts alongside of texts. I love that Immediately after Peter says that this inheritance is kept in heaven for you, in 1 Peter 1, verse 5 now, he says, you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In other words, God isn't simply guarding the inheritance. He's guarding the heirs of the inheritance. He hasn't simply secured eternal life. He's secured you. That's the promise of the gospel. That's the comfort of the gospel. And that's why, that's precisely why 
no matter the circumstances, we can do what Deuteronomy 26 verse 11 commands and what Peter goes on to command in verse six. It's almost like Peter is familiar with his Old Testament. And it's almost as if there really was just one author over all of scripture. Verse six, Peter says, in this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Oh, don't sweat that. You're kept. And your inheritance could never be jeopardized. Christian joy is the grateful response to what Christ has secured for us. It's the grateful response of being someone who is secured in Christ. So take time. Take time on a regular basis to consider your eternal inheritance, to consider the gift God has given you in Christ, to consider what he's done for you by means of the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Christ, to consider that the resurrection of Christ really is the first fruits of what is to come, to consider that you now have the indwelling spirit of God who also is a a guarantee, a pledge, and first fruits of what is to come when the full harvest comes in. Give time week after week. Begin your week just ruminating on this reality. I cannot jeopardize myself because I'm not keeping myself. I'm being kept and guarded as my inheritance is being kept and guarded. And as you consider these things, remember these are things into which Peter goes on to say, angels long to look which you have the privilege of looking into. Finally, point three under the second question. In addition to remembering and rejoicing, I don't have an R, I know. And you call yourself a pastor. It burdened me, Carl, Then every R I came up with, I thought, nah, I'm stretching it there. Third, (laughs) surrender everything to God. If you remember everything you have is a gift of God and you are rejoicing in your eternal inheritance in Christ Jesus, you are ready and positioned to freely surrender everything in worship to this good and gracious God. And keep in mind that surrender is only properly Christian. It's only properly Christian if it is in response to and in recognition of God's grace given in Christ. We do not surrender to God in order to secure a relationship with him. We surrender to God in response to God already securing a relationship with us. That's Christian surrender. And when we realize this, passages like Matthew 13 make a little sense. Matthew 13, 44 and 45 says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered it up. Then in his joy, 
seems to be a recurring theme. In his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, Jesus goes on to say, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who in finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. That's surrender. So church family, Christians, this morning, surrender yourself to God afresh. Surrender your finances to God. They're his. Surrender your hobbies to God. They belong to him. If everything I have belongs to God and has come to me as a result of his grace and I'm rejoicing in the eternal inheritance I have in Christ Jesus, I need nothing and I want nothing. As a result, I'm positioned to surrender everything. Surrender your sports to God. They're his. Younger worshipers in the room, your basketball, your, your baseball, your softball, your volleyball, your wrestling, your football, and whatever other ball you use to play your sport, or perhaps don't use to play your sport. And your dance, your winter guard, your theater, it belongs to God. Surrender to him what belongs to him. Which is really an odd way of saying it, isn't it? Because it already belongs to him. But position yourself holding these things. And again, I've done this before and I've stolen it from Paul David Tripp. But surrender is this posture. It's not that you're not using it anymore. Perhaps you'll continue to play golf or play basketball or do theater or go to work at your particular job. But this is surrender. Father, if you want to take it from me, then take it. It's yours. This is the opposite of surrender. And I will caution you. God's mercy and grace are fierce. And he loves you more than he loves your happiness. And if he has to, in kindness, he will strip it from you. So that in the end, you know you have everything you need in him. That's as much for me as it is for you, brothers and sisters, this morning. Surrender your families to God. They belong to God. They do not belong to you Husbands, your marriage does not belong to you. Wives, your marriage does not belong to you. It's a gift. Surrender it to the God who gives generously. Your children, parents, your grandchildren, grandparents, they do not belong to you. Surrender them to God in Christ. Your bodies. There is a strong cultural narrative that wants us to believe that our bodies belong to us. And it's a damnable lie. Your bodies have been purchased by Christ. 
who came in the body. Therefore, glorify God with your bodies. You are free to use your bodies in any way that pleases the owner of the body. Offer it and surrender to the owner of the body, to God in Christ. We could go on and on and on. As we have seen, Israel was to surrender the first fruits of the land and all their tithes in response to God's grace. And this really culminated in the first few years in a couple of ceremonies. But the same is true for us this morning. Our complete surrender to God is a response to God's grace. It's that simple. What does God, or what God rather instructs us to do this morning through Deuteronomy 26 really does grow out of a realization that everything we have is a gift from God, grows out of a joy of our eternal inheritance in Christ Jesus and results in and materializes in a surrender in the presence of God on account of his grace. In the words of Isaac Watts, which I think is a fitting response to this text this morning, we surrender when we survey the wondrous cross and conclude with these words. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my what? My all. Let's pray, church. Father, that is our desire to surrender our souls, our lives, our all. To do so with joy, knowing that anything we bring as an offering to you belongs properly to you, not to us. And so what that means is you generously give us the privilege of worship and of employing in worship what doesn't even belong to us. And then in your mercy, rewarding us for what you have done. Oh God, we could, as we mentioned a moment ago, rather earlier in our service, we could never outgive you. Would you continue to teach us in the days ahead, the months ahead, the years ahead to remember that everything we have belongs to you and comes to us as a result of grace? To rejoice in our eternal inheritance in Christ Jesus that could never be jeopardized and to surrender everything in worship and service and adoration to you through Christ. We pray these things out of gratitude this morning. And all God's people said,